Book seven, chapters nine through fifteen of On War, volumes two and three, by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter nine, attack of defensive positions. In the book on the defence, it has been sufficiently explained how far defensive positions can compel the assailant either to attack them or to give up his advance. Only those which affect this are subservient to our object, and suited to wear out or neutralise the forces of the aggressor, either wholly or in part, and in so far the attack can do nothing against such positions, that is to say, there are no means at its disposal by which to counterbalance this advantage. But defensive positions are not all really of this kind. If the assailant sees he can pursue his object without attacking such a position, it would be an error to make the attack. If he cannot follow out his object, then it is a question whether he cannot manoeuvre the enemy out of his position by threatening his flank. It is only if such means are ineffectual that a commander determines on the attack of a good position, and then an attack directed against one side, always in general, presents the less difficulty. But the choice of the side must depend on the position and direction of the mutual lines of retreat, consequently on the threatening of the enemy's retreat and covering our own. Between these two objects a competition may arise, in which case the first is entitled to the preference, as it is of an offensive nature, therefore homogeneous with the attack, whilst the other is of a defensive character. But it is certain, and may be regarded as a truth of the first importance, that to attack an enemy thoroughly inured to war, in a good position, is a critical thing. No doubt instances are not wanting of such battles, and of successful ones too, as at Torgau, Wagram, we do not say Dresden, because we cannot call the enemy there quite a word. But upon the whole, the danger is small, and it vanishes altogether, opposed to the infinite number of cases in which we have seen the most resolute commanders make their bow before such positions. Open bracket, Torres Vedras, close bracket. We must not, however, confuse the subject now before us with ordinary battles. Most battles are real rencontres, in which one party certainly occupies a position, but one which has not been prepared. End of chapter 9. Chapter 10. Attack of an entrenched camp. It was for a time the fashion to speak with contempt of entrenchments and their utility. The cordon lines of the French frontier, which had often been burst through, the entrenched camp at Breslau, in which the Duke of Bavern was defeated, the Battle of Torgau, and several other cases, led to this opinion of their value, and the victories of Frederick the Great, gained by the principle of movement and the use of the offensive, threw a fresh light on all kind of defensive action, or fighting in a fixed position, particularly in entrenchments, and brought them still more into contempt. Certainly when a few thousand men are to defend several miles of country, and when entrenchments are nothing more than ditches reversed, they are worth nothing and they constitute a dangerous snare through the confidence which is placed in them. But is it not inconsistent, or rather nonsensical, to extend this view even to the idea of field fortification in a mere swaggering spirit, as Tempelhof does? What would be the object of entrenchments generally, if not to strengthen the defence? No, not only reason, but experience in hundreds and thousands of instances show that a well-traced, sufficiently manned, and well-defended entrenchment is as a rule, to be looked upon as an impregnable point, and is also so regarded by the attack. Starting from this point, of the efficiency of a single entrenchment, 
we argue that there can be no doubt as to the attack of an entrenched camp being a most difficult undertaking and one in which generally it will be impossible for the assailant to succeed it is consistent with the nature of an entrenched camp that it should be weakly garrisoned but with good natural obstacles of ground and strong field works it is possible to bid defiance to superior numbers frederick the great considered the attack of the camp of piena as impracticable although he had at his command double the force of the garrison and although it has since been asserted here and there that it was quite possible to have taken it the only proof in favour of this assertion is founded on the bad condition of the saxon troops an argument which does not at all detract in any way from the value of entrenchments but it is a question whether those who have since contended not only for the feasibility but also for the facility of the attack would have made up their minds to execute it at that time we therefore think that the attack of an entrenched camp belongs to the category of quite exceptional means on the part of the offensive it is only if the entrenchments have been thrown up in haste are not completed still less strengthened by obstacles to prevent their being approached or when as is often the case taken altogether the whole camp is only an outline of what it was intended to be a half-finished ruin that then an attack on it may be advisable and at the same time become the road to gain an easy conquest over the enemy End of chapter ten chapter eleven attack of a mountain from the fifth and following chapters of the sixth book may be deduced sufficiently the strategic relations of a mountain generally both as regards the defence and the attack we have also there endeavoured to explain the part which a mountain plays as a line of defence properly so called and from that naturally flows how it is to be looked upon in this signification from the side of the assailant there remains therefore little for us to say here on this important subject our chief result was there that the defence must choose as his point of view a secondary combat or the entirely different one of a great general action that in the first case the attack of a mountain can only be regarded as a necessary evil because all the circumstances are unfavourable to it but in the second case the advantages are on the side of the attack an attack therefore armed with the means and the resolution for a battle will give the enemy a meeting in the mountains and certainly find his account in so doing but we must here once more repeat that it will be difficult to obtain respect for this conclusion because it runs counter to appearances and is also at first sight contrary to the experience of war it has been observed in most cases hitherto that an army pressing forward to the attack open bracket whether seeking a great general action or not close bracket has considered it an unusual piece of good fortune if the enemy has not occupied the intervening mountains and has itself then hastened to be beforehand in the occupation of them no one will find this forestalling of the enemy in any way inconsistent with the interests of the assailant in our view this is also quite admissible only we must point out clearly a fine distinction here between circumstances an army advancing against the enemy with the design of bringing him to a general action if he has to pass over an unoccupied range of mountains has naturally to apprehend that the enemy may at the last moment block up those very passes which it proposes to use on its march in such a case the assailant will by no means have the same advantages as if the enemy occupied merely an ordinary mountain position the latter is for instance not then in a position extended beyond measure nor is he in uncertainty as to the road which the assailant will take the assailant has not been able to choose his road with reference to the enemy's position and therefore this battle in the mountains is not then unified with all the advantages on his side of which we have spoken in the sixth book 
under such circumstances the defender might be found in an impregnable position according to this the defender might even have the means at his command of making advantageous use of the mountains for a great battle this is at any rate possible but if we reflect on the difficulties which the defender would have to encounter in establishing himself in a strong position in the mountains just at the last moment particularly if he has left it entirely unoccupied before we may put down this means of defence as one upon which no dependence can be placed and therefore as one the probability of which the assailant has little reason to dread but even if it is a very improbable case yet still it is natural to fear it for in war many a thing is very natural and yet in a certain measure superfluous but another measure which the assailant has to apprehend here is a preliminary defence of the mountains by an advanced guard or chain of outposts this means also will seldom accord with the interests of the defender but the assailant has not the means of discerning how far it may be beneficial to the defender or otherwise and therefore has only to provide against the worst further our view by no means excludes the possibility of a position being quite unassailable from the mountainous character of the ground there are such positions which are not on that account in the mountains open bracket piena schmotzefen meissen feldkirch close bracket and it is just because they are not in the mountains that they are so well suited for defence we may also very well conceive that positions may be found in mountains themselves where the defender might avoid the ordinary disadvantages of mountain positions as for instance on lofty plateaux but they are not common and we can only take in our view the generality of cases it is just in military history that we see how little mountain positions are suited to decisive defensive battles for great generals have always preferred a position in the plains when it was their object to fight a battle of the first order and throughout the whole range of military history there are no examples of decisive battles in the mountains except in the revolutionary wars and even there it was plainly a false application and analogy which led to the use of mountain positions where of necessity a decisive battle had to be fought open brackets seventeen ninety three and seventeen ninety four in the vosges and seventeen ninety five seventeen ninety six and seventeen ninety seven in italy close bracket milas has been generally blamed for not having occupied the alpine passes in eighteen hundred but such criticisms are nothing more than early notions we might say childlike judgments founded on appearances bonaparte in miller's place would just as little have thought of occupying the passes the dispositions for the attack of mountain positions are mostly of a tactical nature but we think it necessary to insert here the following remarks as to the general outline consequently as to those parts which come into immediate contact with and are coincident with strategy as we cannot move wide of the roads in mountains as we can in other districts and form two or three columns out of one when the exigency of the moment requires that the mass of troops should be divided but on the contrary we are generally confined to long defiles the advance in mountains must generally be made on several roads or rather upon a somewhat broader front two against a mountain line of defence of wide extent the attack must naturally be made with concentrated forces to surround the whole cannot be thought of there and if an important result is to be gained from victory it must be obtained rather by bursting through the enemy's line and separating the wings than by surrounding the force and so cutting it off a rapid continuous advance upon the enemy's principal line of retreat is there the natural endeavour of the assailant three but if the enemy to be attacked occupies a position somewhat concentrated turning movements are an essential part of the scheme of attack as the front attacks fall upon the mass of the defender's forces 
but the turning movements again must be made more with a view to cutting off the enemy's retreat than as a tactical rolling up of the flank or attack on the rear for mountain positions are capable of a prolonged resistance even in rear if forces are not wanting and the quickest result is invariably to be expected only from the enemy's apprehension of losing his line of retreat this sort of uneasiness arises sooner and acts more powerfully in mountains because when it comes to the worst it is not so easy to make room sword in hand a mere demonstration is no sufficient means here it might certainly manoeuvre the enemy out of his position but it would not ensure any special result the aim must therefore be to cut him off in reality from his line of retreat End of chapter eleven chapter twelve attack of cordon lines if the supreme decision should lie in their defence and their attack they place the assailant in an advantageous situation for their wide extent is still more in opposition to all the requirements of a decisive battle than the direct defence of a river or a mountain range eugene's lines of denson seventeen twelve are an illustration to the point here for their loss was quite equal to a complete defeat but villars would hardly have gained such a victory against eugene in a concentrated position if the offensive side does not possess the means required for a decisive battle then even lines are treated with respect that is if they are occupied by the main body of the army for instance those of stolhofen led by lewis of baden in the year seventeen o three were respected even by villars but if they are only held by a secondary force then it is merely a question of the strength of the corps which we can spare for their attack the resistance in such cases is seldom great but at the same time the result of the victory is seldom worth much the circumvallation lines of a besieger have a peculiar character of which we shall speak in the chapter on the attack of a theatre of war all positions of the cordon kind as for instance entrenched lines of outposts etc etc have always this property that they can be easily broken through but when they are not forced with a view of going further and bringing on a decision there is so little to be gained in general by the attack that it hardly repays the trouble expended end of chapter twelve chapter thirteen manoeuvring one we have already touched upon this subject in the thirtieth chapter of the sixth book it is one which concerns the defence and the attack in common nevertheless it has always in it something more of the nature of the offensive than the defensive we shall therefore now examine it more thoroughly two manoeuvring is not only the opposite of executing the offensive by force by means of great battles it stands also opposed to every such execution of the offensive as proceeds directly from offensive means let it be either an operation against the enemy's communications or line of retreat a diversion etc etc three if we adhere to the ordinary use of the word there is in the conception of manoeuvring an effect which is first produced to a certain extent from nothing that is from a state of rest or equilibrium through the mistakes into which the enemy is enticed it is like the first move in a game of chess it is therefore a game of evenly balanced powers to obtain results from favourable opportunity and then to use these as an advantage over the enemy for but those interests which partly as the final object partly as the principal supports open bracket pivot close bracket of action must be considered in this matter are chiefly a the subsistence from which it is our object to cut off the enemy or to impede his obtaining b the junction with other corps c the threatening other communications with the interior of the country or with other armies or corps d threatening the retreat e attack of isolated points with superior forces 
These five interests may establish themselves in the smallest features of detail belonging to any particular situation, and any such object then becomes, on that account, a point round which everything for a time revolves. A bridge, a road, or an entrenchment often thus plays the principal part. It is easy to show in each case that it is only the relation which any such object has to one of the above interests which gives it importance. F. The result of a successful manoeuvre, then, is for the offensive, or rather for the active party, which may certainly be just as well the defensive, a piece of land, a magazine, etc. G. In a strategic manoeuvre, two converse propositions appear which look like different manoeuvres, and have sometimes served for the derivation of false maxims and rules, and have four branches, which are, however, in reality, all necessary constituents of the same thing, and are to be regarded as such. The first antithesis is the surrounding the enemy and the operating on interior lines. The second is the concentration of forces and their extension over several posts. H. As regards the first antithesis, we certainly cannot say that one of its members deserves a general preference over the other, for partly it is natural that action of one kind calls forth the other as its natural counterpoise, its true remedy. Partly the enveloping form is homogeneous to the attack, but the use of interior lines to the defence, and therefore in most cases the first is more suitable to the offensive side, the latter to the defensive. That form will gain the upper hand which is used with the greatest skill. I, the branches of the other antithesis, can just as little be classed the one above the other. The stronger force has the choice of extending itself over several posts. By that means he will obtain for himself a convenient strategic situation and liberty of action in many respects, and spare the physical powers of his troops. The weaker, on the other hand, must keep himself more concentrated and seek by rapidity of movement to counteract the disadvantage of his inferior numbers. This greater mobility supposes greater readiness in marching. The weaker must therefore put a greater strain on his physical and moral forces, a final result which we must naturally come upon everywhere, if we would always be consistent, and which therefore we regard to a certain extent as the logical test of the reasoning. The campaigns of Frederick the Great against Dorn in the years 1759 and 1760, and against Loudon in 1761, and Montecuculus against Turin in 1673-1675, have always been reckoned the most scientific combinations of this kind, and from them we have chiefly derived our view. K. Just as the four parts of the two antitheses above suspended must not be abused by being made the foundation of false maxims and rules, so we must also give a caution against attaching to other general relations, such as base, ground, etc., an importance and a decisive influence, which they do not in reality possess. The smaller the interests at stake, so much the more important the details of time and place become, so much the more that which is general and great falls into the background, having, in a certain measure, no place in small calculations is there to be found, viewed generally, a more absurd situation than that of Turenne in 1675, when he stood with his back close to the Rhine, his army along a line of three miles in extent, and with his bridge of retreat at the extremity of his right wing. But his measures enter their object, and it is not without reason that they are acknowledged to show a high degree of skill and intelligence. We can only understand this result and this skill when we look more closely into the details and judge them according to the value which they must have had in this particular case. We are convinced that there are no rules of any kind for strategic manoeuvring, that no method, no general principle can determine the mode of action, but that superior energy, precision, order, obedience, intrepidity, in the most special and trifling circumstances, may find means to obtain for themselves signal advantages, and that therefore chiefly on those qualities 
will depend the victory in this sort of contest. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 Attack of Morasses, Inundations, Woods Morasses, that is, impassable swamps, which are only traversed by a few embankments, present peculiar difficulties to the tactical attack, as we have stated in treating of the defence. Their breadth hardly ever admits of the enemy being driven from that opposite bank by artillery, and of the construction of a roadway across. The strategic consequence is that endeavours are made to avoid attacking them by passing round them. Where the state of culture, as in many low countries, is so great that the means of passing are innumerable, the resistance of the defender is still strong enough relatively, but, but it is proportionably weakened for an absolute decision, and therefore wholly unsuitable for it. On the other hand, if the low land, open bracket, as in Holland, closed bracket, is aided by inundations, the resistance may become absolute and defy every attack. This was shown in Holland in the year 1672, when after the conquest and occupation of all the fortresses outside the margin of the inundation, 50,000 French troops became available who first under Conde, then under Luxembourg, were unable to force the line of inundation, although it was only defended by about 20,000 men. The campaign of the Prussians in 1787 under the Duke of Brunswick against the Dutch ended, it is true, in quite a contrary way, as these lines were carried by force very little superior to the defenders and with trifling loss. But the reason of that is to be found in the dissensions amongst the defenders from political animosities and a want of unity in the command. And yet nothing is more certain than that the success of the campaign, that is, the advance through the last line of inundation up to the walls of Amsterdam, depended on a point of such extreme nicety that it is impossible to draw any general deduction from this case. The point alluded to was the leaving unguarded the Sea of Harlem. By means of this, the Duke turned the inundation line and got in rear of the post of Amselvoen. If the Dutch had had a couple of armed vessels on this lake, the Duke would never have got to Amsterdam, for he was au bout de son latin. What influence that might have had on the conclusion of peace does not concern us here, but it is certain that any further question of carrying the last line of inundation would have been put to an end completely. The winter is no doubt the natural enemy of this means of defence, as the French have shown in 1794 and 1795, but it must be a severe winter. Woods which are scarcely passable, we have also included amongst the means which afford the defence powerful assistance. If they are of no great depth, then the assailant may force his way through by several roads running near one another, and thus reach better ground, for no one point can have any tactical strength, as we can never suppose a wood as absolutely impassable as a river or a morass. But when, as in Russia and Poland, a very large tract of country is nearly everywhere covered with wood, and the assailant has not the power of getting beyond it, then certainly his situation becomes very embarrassing. We have only to think of the difficulties he must contend with to subsist his army, and how little he can do in the depths of the forest to make his ubiquitous adversary feel his superiority in numbers. Certainly this is one of the worst situations in which the offensive can be placed. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 Attack of a Theatre of War With the View to a Decision Most of the subjects have been already touched upon in the sixth book and by their mere reflection throw sufficient light on the attack. Moreover, the conception of an enclosed theatre of war has a nearer relation to the defence than to the attack. Many of the leading points, 
the object of the attack, the sphere of action of victory, etc., have been already treated of in that book, and that which is most decisive and essential on the nature of the attack cannot be made to appear until we get to the plan of war. Still, there remains a good deal to say here, and we shall again commence with the campaign, in which a great decision is positively intended. 1. The first aim of the attack is a victory. To all the advantages which the defender finds in the nature of his situation, the assailant can only oppose superior numbers, and perhaps, in addition, the slight advantage which the feeling of being the offensive and advancing side gives an army. The importance of this feeling, however, is generally overrated, for it does not last long and will not hold out against real difficulties. Of course, we assume that the defender is as faultless and judicious in all he does as the aggressor. Our object in this observation is to set aside those vague ideas of sudden attack and surprise, which in the attack are generally assumed to be fertile sources of victory, and which yet in reality never occur except under special circumstances. The nature of the real strategic surprise we have already spoken of elsewhere. If then the attack is inferior in physical power, it must have the ascendancy in moral power, in order to make up for the disadvantages which are inherent in the offensive form. If the superiority in that way is also wanting, then there are no good grounds for the attack, and it will not succeed. 2. As prudence is the real genius of the defender, so boldness and self-confidence must animate the assailant. We do not mean that the opposite qualities in each case may be altogether wanting, but that these qualities named have the greatest affinity to the attack and defence respectively. These qualities are only in reality necessary because action in war is no mere mathematical calculation. It is activity which is carried on, if not in the dark, at all events in a feeble twilight, in which we must trust ourselves to the leader who is best suited to carry out the aim we have in view. The weaker the defender shows himself morally, the bolder the assailant should become. 3. For victory, it is necessary that there should be a battle between the enemy's principal force and our own. This is less doubtful as regards the attack than in regard to the defence, for the assailant goes in search of the defender in his position. But we have maintained in treating of the defensive that the offensive should not seek the defender out if he has placed himself in a false position, because he may be sure that the defender will seek him out, and then he will have the advantage of fighting where the defender has not prepared the ground. Here all depends on the road and erection which have the greatest importance. This is a point which is not examined in the defence, being reserved for the present chapter. We shall, therefore, say what is necessary about it here. 4. We have already pointed out those objects to which the attack should be more immediately directed, and which, therefore, are the ends to be obtained by victory. Now, if these are within the theatre of war which is attacked, and within the probable sphere of victory, then the road to them is the natural direction of the blow to be struck. But we must not forget that the object of the attack does not generally obtain its signification until victory has been gained, and therefore the mind must always embrace the idea of victory with it. The principal consideration for the assailant is, therefore, not so much merely to reach the object as to reach it a conqueror, Therefore, the direction of his blow should not be so much on the object itself as on the way which the enemy's army must take to reach it. This way is the immediate object of the attack. To fall in with the enemy before he has reached this object, to cut him off from it, and in that position to beat him, to do this is to gain an intensified victory. If, for example, the enemy's capital is the object of the attack, and the defender has not placed himself between it and the assailant, 
the latter would be wrong in marching directly upon the capital he would do much better by taking his direction upon the line connecting the defender's army with the capital and seeking there the victory which shall place the capital in his hands if there is no great object within the assailant's sphere of victory then the enemy's line of communication with the nearest great object to him is the point of paramount importance the question then for every assailant to ask himself is if i am successful in the battle what is the first use i shall make of the victory the object to be gained as indicated by the answer to this question shows the natural direction for his blow if the defender has placed himself in that direction he has done right and there is nothing to do but go and look for him there if his position is too strong then the assailant must seek to turn it that is to make a virtue of necessity but if the defender has not placed himself on this right spot then the assailant chooses that direction and as soon as he comes in line with the defender if the latter has not in the meantime had a lateral movement and placed himself across his path he should then turn himself in the direction of the defender's line of communication in order to seek an action there if the defender remains quite stationary then the assailant must wheel round towards him and attack him in rear of all the roads amongst which the assailant has a choice the great roads which serve the commerce of the country are always the best and most natural to choose to avoid any very great bends more direct roads even if smaller must be chosen for a line of retreat which deviates much from a direct line is always perilous five the assailant when he sets out with a view to a great decision has seldom any reason for dividing his forces and if notwithstanding this he does so it generally proceeds from a want of clear views he should therefore only advance with his columns on such a width of front as will admit of their all coming into action together if the enemy himself has divided his forces so much the better for the assailant and to preserve this further advantage small demonstrations should be made against the enemy's corps which have separated from the main body these are strategic forces attacks a detachment of forces for this purpose would be justifiable such separation into several columns as is indisputably necessary must be made use of for the disposition of the tactical attack in the enveloping form for that form is natural to the attack and must not be disregarded without good reason but it must be only of a tactical nature for a single strategic envelopment when a great blow takes place is a complete waste of power it can only be excused when the assailant is so strong that there can be no doubt at all about the result six but the attack requires also prudence for the assailant has also a rear and has communications which must be protected this service of protection must be performed as far as possible by the manner in which the army advances that is eo ipso by the army itself if a force must be specially detailed for this duty and therefore a petition of forces is required this cannot but naturally weaken the force of the blow itself as a large army is always in the habit of advancing with the front of a day's march at least in breadth therefore if the lines of retreat and communication do not deviate much from the perpendicular the covering of those lines is in most cases attained by the front of the army dangers of this description to which the assailant is exposed must be measured chiefly by the situation and character of the adversary when everything lies under the pressure of an imminent great decision there is little room for the defender to engage in undertakings of this description the assailant has therefore in ordinary circumstances not much to fear but if the advance is over if the assailant himself is gradually passing into the defensive then the covering of the rear becomes every moment more necessary 
becomes more a thing of the first importance, for the rear of the assailant being naturally weaker than that of the defender, therefore the latter, long before he passes over to the real offensive, and even at the same time that he is yielding ground, may have commenced to operate against the communications of the assailant. End of chapter 15 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia